Today we're going to continue our series in the book of Acts as we're uh, watching how the true story of the birth of the church unfolds and how the Holy Spirit rushes into the new covenant people of God and how the gospel spreads around the world. You know, I've heard it said that uh, for a teenager, one of the best things you can do, I was a youth pastor for 12 years, I take this very seriously, one of the best things you can do for young adolescent types is to Uh, take them outside of what they know. If you are a person who is in charge of young people, hear me out. It's important to get them outside of what they know. You see, teenagers tend to act like they know it all because they do. It is entirely possible for a teenager to know pretty much everything in their little world because their world is this little bubble that is the, the limitations of what they've been exposed to. So one of the best things you can do is explode that bubble and show them how much they don't know. When I was 18, I knew it all, of course, and my parents knew nothing, and my youth pastor knew nothing as well, and he decided to take the seniors, the graduating seniors, on an international mission trip every year, which I thought at the time was cool. I didn't realize how how genius it was to explode our little worlds. So my graduating class had the unbelievable privilege to fly across the Pacific Ocean and to spend 12 days in Sydney, Australia. We walked over the Harbor Bridge and I lived in a home of Cantonese uh, immigrants from Hong Kong and I ate whatever food was presented to me. It was a multi-generational home and the grandparents didn't speak English, of course, and I just tried my best with chopsticks. It was beyond eye-opening for me as an 18-year-old. It was literally life-changing. I realized how big my world was, and in turn, I realized how big my God was. Today, we're going to see how the gospel spread from an empty tomb in a garden into the whole city of Jerusalem, and and now we're going to see how it goes beyond Jerusalem and how it spreads outside the city walls and into the greater world, because God is a global God, and he's cultivating a global family for himself. What did the risen Christ tell his disciples in Acts 1.8? Do you remember this is kind of our theme verse for the whole series? You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses. Where? In Jerusalem. That's where it starts, at the empty tomb. And in all Judea and Samaria. Judea is the region outside of Jerusalem. And Samaria, the, the northern kingdom area, and to the end of the earth. 30 years after saying this, this prophecy that the Christ spoke would be fulfilled. Last week we read about the, the church's first martyr, a man full of faith, a man full of power and grace and the Holy Spirit, Stephen. And his death was not in vain. It was a terrible scene, but the Lord used Stephen's death in a powerful way to send his church out into the greater wide world. Jesus gave us a blueprint for evangelizing the world. He showed us these concentric circles of influence from our city, outside of our city, and to the ends of the earth. Our missions team here at Woodmont has structured our ministry in such a way that we are strategically focusing on those concentric circles around our city here in Nashville. But sometimes we have a hard time reading God's blueprints. Sometimes it takes a supernatural act of the Lord to nudge us, sometimes to drag us or to push us 
along for his plan to evangelize the world. So as as terrible as the, the violent, brutal, unjust act was against Stephen, the Lord was using this martyrdom to expand the kingdom of God. You know, the church may have never spread beyond Jerusalem if it hadn't been for Stephen. Kent Hughes says that following the church through Acts is like following a wounded deer through the forest. Everywhere we go, drops of blood mark the trail. Remember the early church father Tertullian said that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. That was very true in the early church. The church has always thrived in places where it is least accepted. What does that mean for our culture here in the Bible Belt? It's quickly changing. In other places around the world where Christianity is exploding, it's often in highly persecuted countries. The first verses here in chapter 8 show us these great persecutions that are happening to the early church. Look at verse 1. Saul, we know who that guy becomes, approved of Stephen's execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered. The Greek word is diaspora. They were scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. What does that sound like? Acts 1.8. This is God fulfilling the plan that he had to evangelize the world. Except the apostles, devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. Let me just say, if, if you are a devout person, I believe this, that verse, verse two, gives you license to grieve. They made great lamentation. It wasn't because they didn't have faith. It's because they loved Stephen and they wept for his loss. So if someone tries to comfort you and tells you that your loved one's in a better place, maybe that's true, but it's okay to be sad. It's okay to make great lamentation. Even these men did that. We grieve, but we don't grieve as those without hope, but we still grieve. That's a, that was free. Verse three, Saul was ravaging the church. The Greek word for ravage means like a wild animal with the body of its prey. He was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word like God had a plan. As they were scattered, they evangelized. The, the, the word for preaching the word in Greek is one word, and it means they went about gospeling. That's literally what it means. It's a verb. They went about telling the good news because they couldn't contain it. They had gone from death to life. They had been given a a, a free gift of salvation and they couldn't wait to tell everyone with whom they came in contact with. This Saul guy is, is bringing a whole new level of persecution to the early church. He's relentless, he's ruthless, and he's violent. He's not discriminating men and women. He's rounding them all up, binding them, and throwing them in prison. In Acts chapter 22, in verse 4, when he's sharing his story later as Paul the Apostle, he says, I persecuted this way, that was what they called the early uh, church, to the death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women. Again, ruthless, not discriminating in his violent persecution of the church. But he had no idea that God was already using him to scatter the new covenant church into the rest of the world. 
God was using the zeal of this guy named Saul to accomplish his good purposes for the world. I love that, that irony there. These people, again, you know, are, are being inadvertently sent out by the Lord as they flee Saul and the, the great persecution that's upon them, and they become living witnesses, living examples to the goodness of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And in a more obvious way, God used another guy who is one of those seven Hellenistic Jews that were chosen to be deacons, to be servant leaders in the early church and make sure that the marginalized were getting their fair share and having their needs met. A guy named Philip, he was one of Stephen's buddies and he was a deacon like Stephen. And Philip was again part of this Hellenistic Jew group that was already on the outs in Jerusalem. They were considered second class kind of Jews. But now as a Christian, he's doubly unwelcome in Jerusalem. So he has to hightail it out of there. He flees along with probably other Hellenistic Jews that go out into the world. And where does he go? He goes to Samaria, the northern part of the, the old kingdom of Israel. He goes to Samaria just like Jesus prophesied. Now, you probably know from the story of the Good Samaritan or from John chapter four and the woman at the well, you, you may already know that S Samaria was, was not a place where Jews wanted to be. The, the enmity and the animosity between the Samaritans and the Jews ran deep. It went back over 500 years. You know that the Assyrians, this massive northern kingdom in 722, they came and they wiped out Israel, the northern kingdom, when the Jerusalem had split, the Israelites had split into north and south. The Assyrians came in 722. They captured the whole kingdom of Israel. They took them back as captives, but they allowed them to intermarry. So what happened was the Israelites intermarried with the Assyrians, and when they came back several years later, they had mixed-race children. They were a, a mixed people at that point. In 586 BC, the southern kingdom of Judah was taken captive by Babylon, and they hauled them off to Babylon, but they forbade them from intermarrying. So when they returned back to uh, Israel in 530, they were still considered to be of the same ethnic makeup that they were before they left. So they considered themselves pure, unadulterated, pure blood Jews, and they considered the northerners to be a mixed mongrel breed. You see, it was a, 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 a racism issue. It was a classism issue based on ethnic makeup. That sounds familiar to our culture as well. But Philip had an opportunity here. As a Hellenistic Jew, he was already considered an outsider. Why did God send Philip to Samaria? Because he was uniquely poised to bring the gospel to the people of Samaria. And like Stephen, he was prepared to take down the, the classic sacred cows of traditional Judaism of that day, the, the sacred cows we talked about last week of Moses and the law and the temple and the promised land. None of those things have the power to save. None of those things make you right with God. So God was sending just the right man for the job to Samaria. Look at verse five. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them, the Christ, the Messiah. They knew that there was a Messiah coming. They believed that. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. 
For unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. Whenever the gospel comes and takes root in a place, healing and joy inevitably follow as a consequence. It's a revival. It breaks out all across Samaria. Philip doesn't come there to evangelize specifically, right? He's just running for his life, basically. But the Lord was working through him the whole time. The Holy Spirit was directing his life. And he's obedient when he shows up in Samaria to proclaim Christ, the message of the, the rescuer, the Messiah who has come to save our, uh, uh, God's people. And the result is this revival breaks out across Samaria. People are being saved. They're receiving spiritual and physical healing. It's, it's a beautiful scene. Everyone could see that something supernatural was happening. Man, I long for that so much in our city here in Nashville. If, if you aren't praying for revival, I would challenge you in your prayer life to pray for revival to break out. Maybe this whole pandemic time, maybe all the, the racial strife and enmity that we're seeing, all the political divisions, maybe this is all part of God's plan to bring revival to our city and to our nation. I pray for that every day and I long to see it in my lifetime. One guy who notices this supernatural power is a guy named Simon. Look at verse nine. There was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria. Simon loved magic and you know what? I, I love magic too. Personally, I think magic's awesome. And when I say magic, I mean illusions that are meant to entertain. I love being on a, a mission trip, you know, and being able to, to pull out a goofy trick, you know, and show some kids something like this where you just gather them around you and you say, hey kids, check this out, I got a rubber band. And you pull it as hard as you can and you can pop it like that. But if you rub it really hard, you can actually put it back together. Like that. Pretty obvious trick, maybe. This one's even more obvious, but I love these. So you got a regular quarter here. If you take it like this and you shake it really hard, and then boom, it's gone. Illusions meant to entertain great evangelistic tools, uh, for sure with children who may not be as discerning as adults. But magic in, in biblical times was not it wasn't illusions meant to entertain. Magic in biblical times was a, a combination of dark arts and, and sorcery and, and, and kind of manipulation with evil spirits. It was practiced by these guys like Simon who used sorcery in order to gain power for themselves. They wielded influence over people who were duped by their quackery and, and their sorcery. Some magicians had nicknames like Simon the Great here, the Great One. Look at verse 10. He had tremendous influence in his city. They all, the people in the city of, uh, we think it was the capital city of Samaria, they all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest, saying, this man is the power of God that is called great. You know, they had paid attention to him, verse 11, for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. Instead of telling them these are illusions, he had them convinced that he was the power of God, that he was the grand vizier to God himself. And they believed him and they followed him. 
But then Simon's influence over the people now is being threatened because Philip is coming and proclaiming the truth of the one true triune God of all creation. Look at verse 12. When they believed Philip as he preached good news, that word is gospel, about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women, baptized. Even Simon himself believed. And after being baptized, he continued with Philip. What's that about? I think that maybe Simon saw his influence waning. He saw that his star was being eclipsed by the gospel of Jesus. And he thought, if you can't beat him, join him. So he follows the crowd and he's baptized as well. Was he really regenerated? Did he really believe? Was he a new creation? Did, did the, the gospel take root in his heart? I don't think so. We'll see what happened later to him. It doesn't seem very likely. So he's confronted with a supernatural power that's far greater than anything he's ever experienced. And so obviously he knows this is the real deal and he's, he's blown away by this supernatural power. But his faith is, is like that that falls on the path. It, it, it quickly is eaten by the birds. It doesn't really take root. So Philip is baptizing all these new converts, these, these baby Christians, and, and, and it's amazing how this church plant in Samaria is growing, but this church plant is different. It, it doesn't have the same power that the church in Jerusalem has. The Holy Spirit has not shown up on them yet. Samaritan Christianity was different, but not for long. Look at verse 14. Now, when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent them to Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. At first, when I read this text, it, it, it kind of bothered me. It seems patriarchal and, and hierarchical that these apostles have to come and lay hands on the Samaritans to validate or to verify uh, their faith. But the more I wrestled with it and prayed over this text, I see what a generous act of inclusion this was from Peter and John. I mean, these guys are the premier apostles. They're part of the inner circle of the disciples that traveled with Jesus for three years of their lives, that ate with him, that stayed in homes with him, that heard his teaching day after day as they sought to be like him. And they come not only to, to bring the power of the Holy Spirit to the Samaritans, but they come to welcome them as co-equal brothers and sisters into the family of God. The Samaritans who'd always been outsiders are now at this point full-fledged heirs of Christ. They are, are no longer uh, another kind of outside class, but they are fully members of the family of God. I think it's so beautiful too how the division between north and south kingdoms of Israel have now been reunited by the new covenant gospel into one family once again. It's a beautiful picture of inclusion and reconciliation and, and races coming together in healing and reconciliation. It's a beautiful thing. So as a Baptist, I would say we don't need apostles to come and lay hands on us. I, I would say that 
that kind of seems like a Catholic or the Episcopalians, who, uh, the, the way that they, they trace their, um, their leadership all the way back to Peter. Um, we don't do that. We believe in the priesthood of the believer. But I, I really do believe that the, the lesson for us is how the gospel unifies and divide, it breaks down the dividing wall of hostility between us, as Ephesians 2 says. So the Samaritan Pentecost that takes place means the Holy Spirit shows up and fills the people of Samaria just like he did to the believers in Jerusalem. And God is moving in power, and now Simon is really impressed. His whole life had been a quest for this kind of power, and now he's experiencing it for himself, and so he's got to have it. Look at verse 18. When Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. Simon didn't want the Holy Spirit. He wanted the power. He wanted the authority. He wanted the acclaim, the influence that comes with being able to give the Holy Spirit. He was seeking his own agenda, his own glory. He was seeking his own will. You know, magicians back then and even now had a, a regular practice of paying for tricks or for illusions. I was talking to Trey before this and he was saying how he used to get card tricks and magic sets for his birthday when he was a kid and how he loved magic tricks as well. And he used them as an RA even in college to uh, entertain the students on his floor you could do that. You could buy tricks that would allow you to impress people. But God is not in the magician's guild, okay? God is not in the business of shilling illusions or tricks. Some people tend to approach God, however, as if he's magic, as if you can do something the right way and you will get what you want. You know, magic in that way always seeks to manipulate for selfish purposes. God's not like that, but we are. We are like that. We tend to exploit people and even God in order to get what we want in our sinful, fallen nature that always seeks our self-interest first. A lot of people think that if they say the right words in a prayer, if they pray in Jesus' name, name it and claim it, I'll get a Mercedes. That's not how it works. A lot of people think that if they go through the right rituals in church or if they pray with the correct formulas that they can manipulate God into acting on their behalf. Frederick Buechner says that magic is going to church so you'll get to heaven. Magic is manipulation and says, my will be done. But the Lord's Prayer teaches us about true prayer in which we learn to say, thy will be done. It's not magic. Simon's only thinking of himself here. So you and I may have never tried to buy spiritual power before. We may have never tried to gain an ecclesiastical advantage through money. So you may say, I would never do that. But maybe you and I have tried to manipulate God before. I know I have. For our own benefit. Our fallen nature, again, it cries out constantly for us to use and exploit everything that we have for our own selfish gain. Kent Hughes tells a story, again, in his wonderful commentary about a pastor and his wife who went to put an offer on a house, and they sat down with the selling couple to talk about what the offer would be on the house, and the, the selling couple kind of 
whispered among themselves and smiled at each other and they said, well, pastor, we, we want to give you this house. And the pastor said, wow, that's, that's great. Um, why do you want to give us this house? And the man smiled and he said, well, we know you're a man of the cloth. And if we give you this house, the Lord will surely secure our place in heaven. And the pastor and his wife just kind of frowned and said, yeah, that's, that's not actually how it works. Um, and they, they shared the gospel right then and there with this selling couple. And then they offered, do you want to pray now to receive Christ and really secure the spot in heaven that Christ has already secured for you, really? Do you want to pray now and receive the free gift of salvation? And the selling couple said yes. And the four of them hit their knees in prayer and they received the gospel and the Holy Spirit. It's a beautiful picture. Yes, they ended up giving them the house for free as well, but that's not why they did that. They gained the eternal life that only Christ can give. And money cannot procure God's favor. Christ has already secured God's favor for us. All we have to do is believe in that and receive that free gift by faith. I think Simon was unprepared for the stern reaction that Peter had when he offered to buy the Holy Spirit, the ability to give the Holy Spirit. Peter said to him in verse 20, may your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter for your heart is not right before God. Peter softens up here. He's showing some grace. He says, you know, your heart's not right. Repent, therefore, verse 22, of this wickedness of yours and pray to the Lord that if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. Very pastoral of Peter. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness. Gall, like bile produced by the liver. That's what that word means. And in the bond of iniquity. What a compassionate pastoral thing to say. I see that you're miserable. I see that you're bitter. I see that you're living in, in this miserable state where all you can do is think of yourself. Again, St. Augustine, I always think about this, says that our nature is to be curved in on ourselves, in curvatus se, in Latin. The gospel allows us to unbend to the world, to others, and to God. That's what Peter's offering Simon here. And Simon answered, pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you said may come upon me. He's still seeking his own self-interest. He doesn't repent. He asks Peter to do it for him. Do we have compassion like Peter shows for Simon? He could just leave it as, you and your silver can go and die. But he doesn't. He begs him to repent, to receive the gift of life that is his through Christ. He shows great compassion on a man who is living in the gall of bitterness. I've been told that anywhere between 30 to 50,000 cars a day pass our church. It's probably less during a pandemic, but still, that's a lot of cars that go by our church every day. And I often wonder how many of those 30,000 are lost? How many of them are searching? How many of them are living in this miserable, curved in kind of life where they're searching for meaning? and they can't find it because they're chasing after the wind, chasing after sacred cows, after false promises that offer no real life to them. How many of them are looking for the truth and keep stumbling over their own feet? 
Do we show compassion for those who are lost and searching in our neighborhood, in our city, in our, in our communities, around the world? Are we burdened for those who, apart from knowing Jesus, will live not only in the gall of bitterness now, but forever? I hope that our hearts are broken for the lost like God's heart is broken for the lost, like the master who would, 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 the shepherd who would leave 99 to go after the one who was lost and searching. So again, even though Peter offers Simon this opportunity to repent, he doesn't do it. It's just self-preservation mode. Pray so that none of that stuff will happen to me, please. He's just looking to save his own life, which the irony is you have to let it go in order to receive true life that doesn't come from yourself. So what do we learn from all this? There's just two key takeaways I wanna make sure that we hit on here before we dismiss. First, God uses outsiders to reach outsiders. You know, Philip was a man who was despised in Jerusalem. He was looked down on as a second-class Jew, the perfect man to go to people who had been considered second-class Jews for 500 years. Maybe you're spending so much of your time and money and energy trying to be in the in crowd that you're missing the opportunity that God has for you to reach other outsiders. You know, I'm trying to tell my, my 10-year-old son that it's okay to be an outsider. You don't have to be one of the cool kids. Actually, it's better if you're not. You'll be miserable. You'll be so sick of all the, the backbiting and, and, and social ladder climbing. But what I'm realizing, that doesn't end in middle school. It doesn't end in high school. Adults are the same way. Quit trying to climb the ladder of the in crowd and look for how God can use you to reach outsiders right where you are, just like he used Philip. Look at verse 25. The revival that comes to Samaria through this outsider is a beautiful thing. Now, when they had testified, the apostles and Philip, and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem. They don't just go back to Jerusalem, though. What does it say? They preached the gospel to the many villages of Samaria. Revival was coming to these outside people who were now in the, the best club of all, the family of God, both now and forever. Second point that's a key takeaway, spiritual power is a heart issue. Peter tells Simon over and over again, it's about your heart. Your heart is not right before the Lord, he says. Repent so that you may be forgiven of the intent of your heart. Spiritual power can't be bought. It can't be through manipulating God. It only comes when our hearts are right. In our human ability, who do we think we are? That we could possibly manipulate the God of all creation who alone is sovereign and controls every molecule of the universe and the multiverse and everything beyond that, that we could make him do what we want to do. We live that way all the time in our selfish fallen ways. The power that Philip had only came to him because he loved Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior and had surrendered his life to him. And in doing so, he had put on the new person of the Holy Spirit and received the power that comes through the indwelling of the Spirit. There's a great Scottish preacher who I love to read and quote, Alexander McLaren, who once said, a heart right in the sight of God is the indispensable qualification for all possession of spiritual power or of any blessings which Christ 
gives us? Are our hearts tuned to seeing God's grace today? Are our hearts in step with God's heart? Have our hearts been replaced with a heart of flesh and our hearts of stone removed? Do we share the psalmist's cry from Psalm 42? Psalm 42 says, As a deer pants for flowing streams, so my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for you, O God, for the living God. Are we content like Paul is in, in Philippians chapter 3? I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Imagine the spiritual power that would flow in and through the people of Woodmont Baptist Church if every one of our members lived this way, where we considered everything in the world as loss, where our hearts panted for the Lord, where our souls thirsted for the living God, we would have an unstoppable church full of the power of the Holy Spirit, playing our part in God's redemptive purposes for Nashville and beyond, bringing hope and healing to our neighbors and the world. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you that you have given us the opportunity to obtain amazing spiritual power, not through giving of money, not through saying the right things, not even through attending church, oh God, but simply by laying our lives down at your feet and surrendering all that we are to you and allowing the Holy Spirit to come and fill our hearts. God, our, our hearts long for things of this world. We chase after counterfeit gods and uh, our hearts are idol factories, as John Calvin said. They just churn out idols all day long, things that we long for. Help us to thirst for you, O oh God, the living God the one who truly has the ability to impart life and Holy Spirit power to us so that we can live abundantly now and forever. God, I know so many people in our community, even in our church, who are living in the gall of bitterness. God, we ask that you would come allow them to, to get rid of that, that selfish desire to only seek their own self-interest and to surrender to you the living God. God, tune our hearts to sing your praise. May our hearts break for what breaks your hearts, your heart. Things like justice, things like racial healing, things like peace and unity among Christians in the United States and around the world. Oh God, we long for revival. Just like we saw in Samaria, God, we prayed you would do it in Nashville and beyond that you would break the hearts of those who are living in the gall of bitterness, that we might see your supernatural hope and healing rush into our world. We pray all these things in the high and holy name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Thanks so much for watching. We invite you to bow your heads and receive a word of benediction. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen.
This has been the live broadcast of Woodmont Baptist Church. If you would like to know more about the people and programs at Woodmont, or if you would like to stream both live and pre-recorded services, go to woodmontbaptist.com or call us at 615-297-5303. This program is funded by the members and supporters of Woodmont Baptist Church and is produced by Woodmont Baptist Television. Thanks for watching.